Alleluia, 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 Alleluia. The Lord be with you and with your spirit. Alleluia, Alleluia, Alleluia. I got it this time. <laughs> Last two masses were terrible. <laughs> Isn't that a beautiful word, Alleluia? It's been gone from our vocabulary for the six weeks of Lent, that time that's so sober and everybody's reflecting on their sins and on forgiveness and being pious and holy and trying to do better in their lives. And, and alleluias are nowhere to be found out away from us as we prepare for, you know, the rugged season of Lent. And then suddenly on this beautiful morning, the alleluias are back in full force because, because well, because it expresses as no other word can really our joy and the magnificence of, of the feast that we're celebrating this morning of the great gift of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That word alleluia is so musical, it slides off of our tongues and we can hardly keep from singing it. It is so lovely to say the little syllables, the beginning with an A and ending with an A and the two L's in between. It's like a perfect word. And maybe most of all, it's, 
such an important word for us on this day because, because of its power, because of its power to express in song and words and symbols the great gift of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. Alleluia. Should try singing again? No. <laughs> Don't push your luck, Kev. When we think of the word power, we don't usually think of hallelujah. Most of us from our worldly experience in this real world of ours, when we think of power, we think of whatever it was that the famous Lord Acton was talking about when he said, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely. You know, most of us know plenty about power as it's exercised in this world. We learn early on, even on the playground of first or second grade, what it is to find ourselves up against somebody who has bigger fists than we do, bigger muscles than we do, a more fierce snarl than we have. You know, the playground bully who comes up to us and slaps us around a little bit, bloodies our nose, cuts our lip, and leaves us laying in the dust is he and his acolytes go wandering off giggling about what a wimp you are. That kind of power is the power we know maybe only too well. That bully grows up and you encounter him again in college, university, sometimes the workplace. He's got the same snarl on his face but now he's clever. Now he's got the gift of words. Now he's very, very good at using those words to cut other people down. He looks down on everyone, dismisses them as his inferior, inferiors, and has a way of going to the heart of every other person around him except his little group of acolytes, cutting them to pieces, tearing their guts out, letting them know that they are lowly before him, the all-powerful wag of the university campus or the place of business. And we all know that our history as human beings has been filled with these kinds of powerful people. You know, we've had our fill of tin horn dictators and potentates and, and Caesars and emperors and Fuhrers, all of whom exercise that same worldly power to get their way in the world, to abscond with other people's land, to push people around, to enslave, to oppress, to make themselves powerful by dominating everyone else within their reach and beyond their reach. They've got bigger weapons, more sabers to rattle. They've got more powerful fleets, and they use them to make themselves number one, and no one better challenge them because they've got power. That kind of power is the power we know only too well in our world and all the trouble, of course, that it brings to us. That's the power that Lord Acton was talking about in his famous dictum. Power corrupts. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. And it is precisely that kind of power, the power of the world, the power of the dictators, the power of the Fuhrers, the power of the bullies of our world, 
that comes down upon Jesus full force in the course of the gospel stories that we follow from week to week, Sunday to Sunday, and that come to their culmination in Holy Week, just finished. It is the power of the big shots, the power of the holier-than-thous, the power of the emperor that comes down on this little guy from Nazareth, who by the world's standards has no power. What is it about this Jesus of Nazareth, this carpenter, this little prophet who walks the highways and byways of Galilee, no chariots or swords in sight, simply meeting people, caring for people, healing people, freeing people, forgiving people who need forgiveness and healing new lives in whatever fashion. What is it about him that incites the powerful of this world to hate him so and to wish to push him down into the dust, bloodied and left behind? It starts with the Pharisees, these kind of local rabbis, these guys who have the responsibility in little places around Judea and Galilee, starts with them. They're the ones who teach the people what God is like. They're the ones who are supposed to teach the people about Moses' law and the story of their ancestors, Abraham and Moses, and what God expects from them in their daily life. And they're good at it. But when Jesus comes along and says, well, you're kind of missing some of the story here. You've gotten so focused on the law and of doing things correctly that you've lost the spirit behind it. You've lost the God in the God you proclaim. And they don't like to hear that because effectively he's pulling the carpet out from under their hypocrisy. He's showing them to be people who've lost the heart of the message they were sent to proclaim. And who wants to be seen as a fake, as a charlatan, as someone who's less good at what they're supposed to be doing than this upstart pastor from Galilee. And so they begin to poke and to probe and eventually to push back against Jesus with all the force that they have available to them. It doesn't stop with the Pharisees. Up in Jerusalem, you've got the Sadducees and the high priests. These are the big shots of the temple. They're the ones who protect the rituals of the temple, who oversee the sacrifices that are to be done there with lambs and doves and God knows what all. They manage humanity's relationship with God through their temple rituals. And they do a really good job at that as well. They can make a lot of money off of this business. And they are so good at it that they come to believe that, in a sense, they've got God in their pocket. That not, uh, they're not just God's servants, but in a way, God is their servant. God does what they tell God to do. And humanity, the people of faith, better do it their way. And once again, here's Jesus saying, this isn't the way God wants it to be done. God is a father to us. God is one who speaks to us in our hearts. 
God is one who lives in us, and lives in the poor, and lives in the needy, and lives in the leper. You know, leave behind the gold and the ivory and the temple stuff and listen to these people. Find God there. And of course, that is not a message they want to hear. They don't like upstarts from Galilee coming into their temple quarters and overturning their money changers' table. That's, that's the economy that makes the whole thing work. And so they too bring the full force of their power, their worldly power, to bear against this carpenter from Nazareth. And we all know it doesn't stop there. There's the miserable Herod, you know, the supposed king, who's merely a puppet of the Romans. And speaking of the Romans, could there be any worldly power bigger and greater than Caesar with all of his empire and all of his centurions and all of his gladiators and all of the people that he has at his disposal to put down any revolution or any revolutionary. He's got Pontius Pilate to do this dirty work in Galilee and Judea, and he does it well. And all of this comes down upon Jesus. For what reason? Why do they need to beat him up? Why do they need to spit upon him? Why do they need to flog him and take him out onto an old hilltop and nail him to a cross and leave him to die on a hot Friday afternoon? What did he do to these powerful people except show them a different kind of power than their power? What Jesus did throughout his ministry was simply to be humble, to look at a person who is sick and to say, I have compassion for you and I want you to have a fresh start, to heal a leper. What's so awful about that? To take a woman caught in adultery and stand between her and the rabble with their rocks ready to stone her to death. And simply say, okay, fellas, which one of you has never sinned? Go ahead, throw the first rock. And in doing so, he gives that woman freedom to go and start a new life. Jesus exercises compassion. Jesus exercises forgiveness. Jesus shows forth the self-giving spirit that comes from God. I will forgive even my enemies over and over and over again because that is what God is like. That's God's kind of power. And even when they persecute me, even when they spit upon me, even when they nail me to the cross, I shall forgive them all from Caesar at the top all the way down to the lowliest Pharisee who has dissed me because he doesn't like that I've shown him to be what he is, a hypocrite before God and the people. Jesus absorbs the hatred 
the exercise of brute power against him. And he refuses the way of vengeance. He refuses the way of hatred. He loves even those who are taking his life from him. That's his kind of power. That's Jesus's kind of power. And to the world, to the Caesars and the Herods, the Sadducees, the high priests, the Pharisees, to multitudes through history, Jesus's way of humility, of compassion, of self-giving love, of forgiveness most of all, is the way of the loser. It's the way of one who doesn't win in this world. It's the way of death. Who wants to go there? What happens to Jesus is evident that he's a loser. He ends up in a tomb cold and hard, rotting away, death forever. That's his destiny. And suddenly, on the first day of the week, early in the morning, maybe even before the sun is rising, little Mary of Magdala, sinner herself, presumably, follower of Jesus' way, humble because she is not a powerful person in the world, discovers something extraordinary. That cold, hard tomb with the big stone rolled across its entryway that no one could escape from, especially a dead person, has been opened. The tomb is empty. The tomb is empty. And in that, Jesus' way is vindicated. Jesus' way of humility, Jesus' way of service, Jesus' way of compassion, maybe most of all, Jesus' way of forgiving love, suddenly becomes powerful because death has been defeated, because the power of the powerful has been defeated, because brute force has been defeated, because snarling lips have been defeated, because bullies have been defeated in his resurrection to life. The empty tomb proclaims it all. Well now, Here's a word to describe the fracturing of that old order of power we know so well from the bully in first grade all the way up to our world's furors and potentates, tin horn dictators. Their power is the one that's fake and does not hold life and that is actually dead. Jesus' kind of power. Jesus' power of compassion, forgiveness, of self-giving love 
is the one that lives. And in that, he fractures his tomb and the power of the world it represents. And at first, a small handful of disciples pick up his way and become fissures also in this world's structure of power and then hundreds and then thousands and millions and today there's a billion of us who have been baptized into the power of Jesus Christ into his humility into his forgiveness into his love into his freedom even from death and we represent the fractures that soon enough in God's own good time will bring down the structures of brute power and replace them with the kingdom of God. And there is no greater word for all of this, no more beautiful word, no more musical word, no more lovely word, no more powerful word for Jesus' victory on this day over the power of this world then Alleluia. Amen.